Charlie mentioned uh, Walter Lane, the regular preacher, is up in Durango with uh, 40 some odd other folks from our congregation. Uh, so I'm filling in for him for today. If you don't know me, my name is Craig Hayes. I'm one of the shepherds here. And as will become readily apparent, I am not a professional preacher. Um, we want to talk a little bit about today, though. Our main theme for this year has been coming from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. So I'm going to start with that. But prove yourself doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. When you read this passage and it talks about this man who forgets basically what he's here for, you start to wonder what made him forget? Is he spiritually shallow? Is he a little dense? What is it that causes us to forget effectively why we're here? And that's what I want to talk about today is what causes us to forget about why we're here. I figure the easiest way, whenever I'm trying to figure out how I should behave, how I should live, there's a fairly simple way to figure that out in the Bible, right? Who's the perfect example? Jesus Christ. So when we're trying to figure out effectively how it is we should live, and how we should behave, and what allows us to stay focused on the things we need to be focused on, we begin with Jesus. So how did Jesus keep what he needed to focus on in perspective? How did he remember? And how do we imitate Jesus in order to maintain this remembrance? So in the book of Luke 9.59... It says, and speaking of Jesus, and he said to another, follow me. But he said, oh, excuse me, it should have been 58. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus lived in such a way that he did not even have a home during the two and a half to three and a half years of ministry that he lived on this earth. And a little earlier in the chapter, in Luke 9.3, he's sending the 12 uh, apostles out. And he said to them, Take nothing for yourselves, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. And do, do not even have two tunics apiece. Why in the world would Jesus have expected these men to do with so little? Was it just to make it hard? What was the purpose for that? So as as Zane alluded to earlier, I have a very complicated outline today. In keeping with the topic, less is more. 
The first line on that outline. More possessions do not bring us more happiness. Here's a few statistics I've collected from the Los Angeles Times. In the average American home, there are 300,000 items. 300,000. From National Public Radio, the average size of the American home has nearly tripled in size in the past 50 years. Tripled. From the Social Security Administration, the United States has 50,000 storage facilities. 7.3 square feet of self-storage for every man, woman, and child in the nation. It is physically possible that every American could stand under the canopy of self-storage. From the Daily Mail, this is my favorite actually. Over the course of our lifetime, we will spend a total of 3,680 hours or 153 days searching for misplaced items. The research found we lose up to nine items every day or 198,743 items in a lifetime. So the question is, why in the world do we keep acquiring more things? Proverbs 27.20 Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. It talks about how somehow we can always think of something else we want. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. So it talks about how we always seem to want more. We can't seem to get enough. We can't seem to be fulfilled with what we have. But I think the key is in Ecclesiastes 4.8. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and the New American Standard puts in, and he never asked. And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. And my point when I read this particular verse isn't to talk about the guy working when he didn't have any dependents he was going to leave his business to. My point is the key phrase that the New American Translators put in there. But he never asked. Why am I doing what I'm doing? We never stop to think. It's really pretty simple. We get more stuff. Why? Well, everybody's got more stuff. We got new stuff. You know, um, we need the latest electronic gadgets. Everybody can see. I, I always make sure I've got the latest, greatest phone. But whatever it is, we need bigger houses. Why? Well, because that's what we have. Because we are trained as Americans, right, that we should be doing better than our parents did, right? And what does better mean? I'm from Texas. What's the best, what makes something better if you're from Texas? It's bigger. Bigger houses, bigger trucks, bigger hair, whatever it may be. It needs to be bigger. 
And that's what we learn from early, early on. But I'm going to stop us for a moment. And what I want today is do something that I don't think we often do. As opposed to that man, I want us to stop and ask why. Now, make sure I understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying it's wrong to be rich. We've got numerous examples of people in the Bible who were wealthy, and a number of them weren't. Some of them did come into trouble with their wealth, but many did not. We've got Abraham, who was wealthy and never showed any problems with being wealthy, right? We've got, well, one of Jesus' closest friends, Lazarus. Best I can tell, he was a pretty wealthy man because he had his own tomb. Okay? A wealthy man, Jesus' closest friend. Lydia, the seller of purple that we read about in Acts. That was a profitable profession. She was a solid businesswoman. Never was it once criticized. In fact, what became is she became the center of the church because she was, had the resources to host them, right? Okay. So it's not that itself. And in fact, in the most misquoted scripture in the Bible, it's 1 Timothy 6.10. Love of money is, is a root of all sorts of evil. Love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Not money is the root of all evil. Quite a bit of difference, right? So it's not that money itself is the problem. But my question is, does money bring happiness? There was a documentary that came out a couple of years ago called Happy. And they tried to investigate what made people happy. And of course, one of the questions was, does money make you happy? And when they looked at the, the level for Americans, a study had been done, and the answer is, yes, it does. Is that the wrong answer? But the key is, it gave happiness up to an earning income of 35000 a year. Between 35000 and $35 million, there was no discernible difference. So basically... Once your needs were really met, it didn't make a difference. Okay. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, kind of sums up that concept. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of God. So basically what it's saying, can being rich lead us astray? Yes, it can, right? Because it causes all sorts of deals where it's harder to rely on God. And we, something that those who are wealthy need to be aware of is where their wealth came from. But being poor causes other problems. In his case, he's talking about stealing. But I would argue, think about all the stresses that come from bill collectors, from making sure you've got what your kids need. Poverty is not a healthy way to live either, right? So the fact is, is he says, neither be wealthy. The best is to be neither wealthy nor poor. But when it really comes down to it, it's not about how much money we have. It's about the direction our things take us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Okay. And skipping down to uh, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The problem isn't with just the fact about having things. The fact is, when you have things, effectively, you don't really possess them. When all is said and done, your possessions possess you. Does it take more time to do yard work if you've got a small yard or a big yard? Does it take more time to do repairs around a house if it's a small house or a big house? Does it take more time to keep your vehicles repaired if you have one car or five cars? It's really very simple, right? Are you more likely to lose your stuff in a small setting where you have a few items or in a large setting where you have 300,000 as an average? 300,000 is an average number of items in your home. See, what happens, the problem isn't necessarily the things themselves. It's the fact that you've got to spend your day managing your stuff because they demand attention. You have a lot of plants in your house. You've got to water a lot of plants, right? I mean, this, this, this goes on and on and on, whatever you want to pick. It just keeps going on. And why do we have all these things? I don't know. Never really thought about it. Right? And that's what it boils down to. But I want us to think about why we have all these things. In Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, Paul writes about himself. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. And it's interesting because I've heard these verses read a lot. And I've heard the next verse read a lot. But for some reason, I never hear them read together. He goes right on from the deal to discussing about want about living with nothing and living with a lot. And then he goes on to verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So why does he go from talking about being content with little or being content with a lot into I can do all things through God who strengthens me? Because don't we usually use that to talk about how specifically we endure hardships? How we can be strong to do things we don't know we're capable of? But here, what Paul is actually talking about is God enables him to be content in the moment where he is at that time. That's what this passage is talking about. What I want us to learn to do is learn to evaluate what you have 
and why you have it. The great sports columnist Rick Riley wrote one of my favorite lines. If you're not sure you need it, you don't need it. If you're not sure you need it, you don't need it. It's really pretty straightforward, right? Having more does not bring more joy. But this applies to things besides just our possessions. When you look at Jesus and how he makes decisions, look at a couple of passages and look at one in Mark. In chapter 1, he's going to make, it's time for him to decide who his 12 disciples are. Starting in verse 12. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Sorry, this isn't the disciples. This is before beginning his ministry in one twelve. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and his angels were ministering to him. So when Jesus was going to do, begin his ministry, he began to read all the resources he could. He put together a task force. He made a plan. He went to a place of quiet and prayed and meditated. He didn't get busy. He got unbusy. Before he selected his apostles in Luke chapter 6 verse 12. And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him. And chose 12 of them, whom he also named his apostles. He had a big decision to make. He didn't go consulting everyone he knew. Again, he didn't go checking resumes. He went off to a place of quiet and prayed for the entire night. And time and time again in the Gospels, what we see with Jesus is that he goes off to places of quiet on a regular basis, often early in the morning, to refresh, to recharge, to refocus. So the next point in the outline is that more activities do not make us more productive. We confuse busyness with productivity. We think that if we're moving all the time, we must be getting a lot done. We confuse activities with relationships. If you really love your kids, you'll have them involved in a minimum of seven activities, right? So that way you can shuttle them from place to place, whether or not you ever actually get to talk to your children or not, right? We spend time doing things 
We're involved in electronics, whether it's the Internet, Facebook, binging on Netflix, staring at our phones, playing video games, whatever it is. Do you oftentimes go to a restaurant and see a couple both staring at their phone for the entire time of the dinner? They spent time together, right? Quality time together. But the relationship has been replaced by the activity. In Henry David Thoreau's great book, Walden, he says, our life is frittered away by detail. Simplify, simplify, simplify. I say let your affairs be as two or three and not as a hundred or a thousand. Fewer activities can make us more productive. In Mark 2.27, Jesus said something interesting. You know, remember Jesus is being criticized because he does work, what they view as work on the Sabbath, right? He and his disciples. And that's what they're being condemned for. And he said in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And again, it seems frequently when we study this scripture, we focus on the fact of that Jesus was allowed to work on the Sabbath, right? That it was okay. But he says, that's not what he says exactly. What does he say? He said the Sabbath was made for man. So do you ever stop to wonder why the Sabbath was made for man? Exodus 23, 12. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor in order that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, may refresh themselves. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard, and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. But basically, he's wanting us to rest. Again, in Exodus thirty-three fourteen, And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. That's a promise from God to give us rest. In the new law, our discussion usually comes around to be whether the Sabbath is a commandment, whether the Sabbath is Saturday or Sunday. But I want us to talk about the concept today of what it's about. Not about the specific commandment, but about the idea of Sabbath. Not about whether it's a Saturday or Sunday or any of those sorts of things. Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. God does not want our lives to be hard. In Hebrews chapter 4, starting verse 9, 
Here's what he says, the writer says about the Sabbath. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. Why do we need to be diligent to enter that rest? Well, back in Exodus 31.13, it addresses that. But as for you, speak speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Why do we need that time of Sabbath? Why do we need that time of rest? So that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. As long as we stay busy, we tend to forget about God. We become that man in the mirror who turns away and forgets. Why do I think that man forgot? Because he was busy. But when we stop, when we rest, it allows for us to focus and plan for what's important. And Jesus, remember as we read, took those times to stop and focus. He took those quiet times. He didn't have to be busy every moment. But we don't slow down enough to focus. Going back to the scripture that was read this morning, Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Interesting part is when you read, you know, what comes out of this a lot is that we think Martha is the deep one, and Mary's, excuse me, Mary's the deep one, and Martha is the shallow one, right? That's what the takeaway from that passage is. But if you turn over to John chapter 11, verse 20, when Lazarus has died, Jesus shows up. All the Jesus' apostles think they're going there just to mourn with them because it's all done, because Lazarus is dead. But here is Jesus' interaction with Martha. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Martha still sat in the house. Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, even now I know, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She wasn't done just because Lazarus was dead. 
And she lets Jesus off the hook a little bit. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And it goes on in verse 27. She says to him, you, you Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, and he who comes into the world. While everyone else was not sure who Jesus was and what Jesus was capable of, Martha already had it. Martha wasn't spiritually shallow. She was like that person in James who had turned and just forgotten and got busy in activities. Matthew 6, 35 and 34 says, I guess I did write one down wrong. Oh, it's got to be 33 and 34. Okay. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has a trouble enough of its own. And that makes the last point, which Martha was involved in. There's two things. She was involved in many activities, but she also thought that more worry would give us more control. And more worry does not give us more control. We spend a lot of time worrying about things that we can't control. And when you look at the way Jesus handled it again in Matthew 26, 39, in the time that was the worst of him, the time that he had true worries, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, my father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. He was worried, but he did not believe that by continuing to fret and fume and fluster and concentrate and cry and moan and wail, that that was what was going to change it. He knew in the end, as hard as it has been for him, and the weeping and the sorrow, that was genuine and legitimate. Sorrow is a legitimate feeling that we have. But at the end, how things went depend on God. And he had to know when to turn that over. We try to gain control of our health, our children, our physical safety, our financial stability, by checking our portfolio balances every day, by bringing guns to the church building, by every absurd thing we can think of, we try to gain control. We show worry. Most people have heard of the serenity prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr. But most people have heard a very abbreviated version. I want to read that. God, give me grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things which should be changed. And the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. But here's the part we don't usually hear. Living one day at a time. Accepting one moment at a time. Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life. 
and supremely happy with you forever in the next. So let's stop cluttering our lives with possessions, with activities, with worries, so that we can refocus again on the perfect law and not become distracted from being doers of the word. Let's stand and sing.